Welcome to the Crescent Podcast. I'm Leanne. This podcast is an extension of my personal philosophy and commitment to continual growth in all areas of life. I firmly believe that optimal health comes from addressing all areas of us as human beings, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Through expert interviews, I hope to both inspire and enable you to create sustained change in your own life. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy. Well, welcome back everybody to the Accrescent Podcast. I am actually putting up this episode today because I really wanted to get this information out as soon as possible. So today I interviewed Karen Hurd, and she is a biochemist and previous captain in the army working on chemical warfare, and she really takes a deep dive with us into all things coronavirus, what the current stats are, and then truly the best and easiest ways that we can protect ourselves and give our immune system and body all the tools it needs to either protect us or fight a virus if we get it. So I'm so excited for you guys to hear this episode with her. She really does such a good job of just dispelling any fear or concern around this and filling all of us with the confidence that we're going to get through this. Our bodies are completely capable of fighting a virus like this. And she gives an incredible intro to herself. Her story and her history is so inspiring and eye-opening. So I am going to jump right into this episode and I hope you guys all learn so, so much from this and really just are filled with so much peace after listening to everything that she has to share. Karen Hurd, thank you so much for coming on the Accrescent podcast and just sharing your expertise and your knowledge and your time with us. Oh, you're welcome. I'm delighted to be on. I want to help people understand this virus and um, and not be so fearful of it. So I think that's uh, that will be the outcome of this session, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so excited for you to share all of that quickly before we jump into everything coronavirus. Can you just share briefly your background, a little bit of the story? I know it personally because I've heard many other interviews with you, but for those who may not have heard of you, your story in the health and wellness world, how you got to where you are today. Oh, it was quite a journey. Um, And one totally unexpected for me. I graduated at the top of my class in high school, loved chemistry and all those things. But, eh, you know, I was a kid, decided I was going to major in Spanish. So I went to the university and got a Bachelor of Arts in Spanish, although I was really drawn to all the math and the chemistry and did so well in it. Finished my bachelor's in the time I was in um, university. I also accepted a Reserve Officer Training Corps ROTC scholarship. And so when I finished my university education, I went on to be an officer in the United States Army in the military intelligence. As part of my um, duties in that, um, that tour of duty that I had in those four years, I became the nuclear, biological, chemical warfare, defense warfare um, trainee, trainer for my battalion. Um, so to 
be in that position, I had to go to a school on nuclear, biological, and chemical warfare. And that was, that was very eye-opening for me to learn all the things that I learned. Graduated as the top number one student in my class, went back and trained my battalion in what we would do in case we came into contact with any of these nuclear, biological, chemical warfare weapons. So that was like a, a real big underlay of of knowledge for me. Got out of the service because I wanted to have a family. Three children later, my third child was a little girl named Ruth. And when she was 18 months old, we had moved into a home that was, which we didn't know when we moved into it. We found out shortly thereafter was overrun with carpet beetles. I mean, they were just to say they were everywhere. What an understatement. They were everywhere. You open the drawers, they're in the, they're in your clothes, they're in the silverware drawer, they're everywhere. So what do we do? Well, you call a local exterminator, of course, which is something we did in my heart because I had all this training in nuclear, biological and chemical warfare. I was a little concerned, but you know, you can only squash so many of them, you know, smash them and kill them. You know, it's just like, okay, we'll leave the house. Long story short is we had the house sprayed. We went back to the house and shortly thereafter, my 18 month old, we were all sick, had this little upper respiratory symptoms. She went into grand mal seizures. Mm. It was very traumatic. Um, it ended up that uh, the hospital, we ended up in St. Louis Children's Hospital, a very good hospital in St. Louis. Um, but they said, no, she couldn't have been poisoned because by this time I'm saying this is a neurological agent. I had already done my homework. I'd already called the, the exterminating company. I asked them exactly what was the name of the chemical they used. I'd already looked it up. I knew that it was a nerve agent. I knew exactly what the, the symptoms of nerve agent poisoning were because that was my training in the United States Army. I said, this is nerve agent poisoning. Nobody would believe me. I mean, I had nine neurologists working on her case at St. Louis Children's Hospital. I'll never forget that day when they sat me down in Ruth's hospital room and said, Mrs. Hurd, you are barking up the wrong tree. This girl was not poisoned. I said she was. I mean, so this is after the second set of grand mal seizures and she's on phenobarbital. It was terrible. Long story short is I couldn't get any help from the medical society. So I started to do the research on my own. I uh, got a hold of uh, every poison control center in the entire United States. I called them all. Eventually, talked to one in Dallas, Texas. I'm in St. Louis. Talked to one in Dallas, Texas, and they said, you really have to talk to Dr. Sheldon Wagner, who is out in Corvallis on the West Coast at the university there. And so I called him and actually, you know, you never get to speak to the person themselves. You always talk to the secretary, to the secretary, to the secretary. You have to talk to to um, Dr. Sheldon Wagner myself, he said, absolutely, your little girl could be poisoned. Hasn't anybody run a cholinesterate level, which I knew they had to run. And I had begged and begged and begged the doctors to run a cholinesterate level because that would show if she had been poisoned or there's it's a certain liver enzyme. Anyway, no, they refused to do it because they said it wasn't not necessary. It's a simple blood draw. But anyway, he said, give me the name of your pediatrician. I need you to send on dry ice because the carpet that had been sprayed with this um, this uh, insecticide needed to be tested for the levels of the insecticide. Send it to me next day of dry ice. And anyway, did all those things. Within a half an hour after getting off the phone with Dr. Wagner, I got a call from my 
our doctor in St. Louis and said, could you bring Ruth in for a cholinesterate level? Did that. Guess what? It was positive. She'd been poisoned. Wow. Um, Dr. Sheldon Wagner with the university facilities went through and tested all the carpet. And he also asked me for a sample of breast milk because I was still nursing her. She was 18 months at the time. And breast milk, everything was, was it had concentrations of the chloropyrifos, which is the name of the active ingredient in the, in the um, spray that they had used. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, she was poisoned. So it was all confirmed. St. Louis Children's Hospital Administration, the chief administrator called me, apologized, said, oh, we're so sorry. We should have done what you asked, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, it was it was just a very bad time. I was pregnant at the time also. Um, I lost that baby. We were all sick. And so now it's the aftermath. What's going to happen? Because Ruth was not well. None of us were well, but she was, she was, she was at death's door. And so the prognosis with all the specialists, we took her to specialists in St. Louis, in Dallas, also in Chicago. The prognosis was all the same. She will be dead in six weeks. Her liver was in, was compromised in such a way that it could never recover. And I said, I don't, I don't accept that. I can't accept it. And they said, you have to accept it. She's not going to survive. And the rest of you will probably be dead in five years. And she's like, Oh, oh boy, I, yeah, you know, uh, this is high stress. Okay, so we're in St. Louis. I go to Washington uh, University. It's a medical school there in St. Louis, Washington Medical University. And I went to the library. I have no help because every professional in the medical field is saying there's nothing we can do. Actually, I remember walking out of one of the specialist offices. He said, you know, we've never seen anybody die of chloroplastate poisoning before and how it's damaging the liver. Could we just take liver biopsies of your child? They're very painful, by the way. You know, just to document it for medical, you know, research how a person dies of this. I said, no, get out of here. I'm, I'm leaving. I just packed up and left. You know, and just said, I have to find a way. So I go to the library or present myself to the librarian and say, what, what, help me, you know, and they, we were, things were still on microfish then. We're talking 1989, okay, 1989. Oh, and wow. so began to, there's none of this nice digital stuff you just type in in your search parameters. No, 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 no. This is, you know. I spent so much time in that library um, to try to find some answer. I read everything from snake oil remedies to the most recent research that was being done, current research. And nothing actually spoke to it directly, but I cobbled together a plan which involved soluble fiber and, and put together a plan for Ruth and then implemented it with her and was all a nutritional plan because I had nothing available to me. I had no drugs. I had, I was nothing. I'm yeah. You were a captain in the United States army. Sure. You know something about nuclear chemical, biological warfare. This, this would be a type of biological warfare, but you know, I don't have any degree or anything. Anyway, long story short, it worked. The plan that I put together worked. And Ruth began to recover and recover quite rapidly. Then there came a little news article. I don't even know how they got a hold of it, but it came out in the local paper there in St. Louis. Little girl destined to die lives. And I started to get phone calls. And actually, my phone number wasn't even in the article, but my name was. I guess people, you know, they can find you however they want to find you. I started getting phone calls. Hey, could you help me? Could you help me? Could you do that? I said, I don't know anything about your situation. I'm not a nurse. I'm not a doctor. I am nothing. You know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm nothing. I can't help you. Well, would you please do something? Nobody's been able to help me. I said, well, I guess I can go down to the library and read and I could tell you what I would think I would do, but you can't hold me to that because I'm nobody. Anyway, that just escalated and escalated till there were more and more people that I had spoken to. And then I started to have organizations ask me to come and speak. Southwestern Bell Telephone. Um, I spoke for them many, many times. I would have up to 800, 1,000 people listening to my lectures. And I'd say, what do you want me to talk? And I'll go to the library research and I'll give you my opinion, you know, that type of thing. Um, the St. Louis, um, the the parish, the Catholic parish in St. Louis asked me to speak to their groups. The Drury Inns asked me to speak to their groups, their, all their employees. It just kept going on and on. And finally, the University of Missouri said, would you teach? And I said, I don't even have a degree. They said, we know it would be really helpful if you get one. So, you know, <laughs> my degree is in Espanol, you know, in Spanish. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, and so I got some army training. That's nice. So then I went ahead and did my nutritional training. And so that's how I got all into it. And then then I went back and um, I had have had a very, very full practice, a, a large practice for years. And so I had to go back and I needed to take all of the 10 semesters of chemistry and the three semesters of calculus and statistics and physics, several semesters of physics and, and biology, biochemistry, everything to prep for a master's degree in biochemistry. Cause you can't just walk into, you can't get accepted into a master's program in biochemistry. And basically, unless you have a bachelor's degree in biochemistry. So I did all the work, didn't get a bachelor's. I just did the work so that I could qualify for the master's degree and then went into my master's degree and finished that master's degree in biochemistry. And currently I am prepping to finish. I am three years out from finishing my PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology. And so I've continued my education and so have become quite, um, not just education wise, but as far as experience, I, I have been a nutritionist for now 30 years. This happened in 1989 and I was bombarded almost from the get go with people asking me questions and gaining my education as I went along. So it's been a, it's been a long, long three decades of a good three decades of helping people to get well and and with solutions that are within their grasp. You know, it doesn't have to be a medication. It doesn't have to be a supplement. It can just be food. Food is powerful. It has the power to kill. It also has the power to heal. Mm-hmm. So. Oh my gosh. It's how I got into it. Yeah. It's such a powerful story and so touching. The first time I heard it truly, I was crying because I can't even imagine trying to put myself in your shoes and buckle down with all of the stress and the fear and everything. So I so admire you and thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it was, they were, they were difficult years. I, there's no doubt about it, but it, it was meant to be this way. I would never be where I am today unless all that had happened. You know, things happen in our lives to, to get us to where we need to be. Mm-hmm. And so, and Ruth is alive today. She yeah. is alive <laughs> and well. She works for me. She's my, she is my executive assistant in my business. And so she is very well and very healthy. And yeah. so were the rest of us that were poisoned too. I'm we all so glad well to hear too. that. I know that's an important end to this story. <laughs> so then let's transition into coronavirus. Again, as I was saying before, there's a lot we could cover here. So 
We're going to try and keep it succinct, um, really useful information, things like what the current stats are, um, your thoughts on the mortality rate, what people should be doing to protect themselves and what they also should not be doing to further protect themselves, what to do if they're feeling unwell, and you know, sort of see where that goes from there. But so let's start off with what are the current stats? I know you said you checked just this I, morning. Just on this morning. Yeah. yeah, I have the current stats. And where we need to go for the current stats is the World Health Organization. Um, because there's a lot of uh, different websites out there reporting a lot of stuff. And we have to have confirmed cases that, you know, we've tested them and confirmed them because there's lots of upper respiratory viruses. So we need to know this is the COVID-19 virus. Mm -hmm. Um, Currently, there are 9,840 people that have died from COVID-19 worldwide. Out of the number of cases, which is 234,073 cases, we've had 9,840 deaths. The percentage is 4.2%. So worldwide, 4.2% of the people that have had COVID have died from it. Um, In the United States specifically, and it's, it's called the region of Americas on the World Health Organization, there's 178 deaths out of 13,271 cases. So 1.3% of Americans are have died of the coronavirus um, 19. 1.3% compared to the world total of 4.2. So that's okay. the current stats. It's a, a small amount compared to the normal amount of deaths in America alone. And the flu season, 2017, 2018 flu season, because it's a winter season, you know, it starts in November and it carries through to the end of March is usually our flu season. We had 80, it was the highest in all years. It was 80,000 people in the U.S. alone that died of the upper respiratory, of the flu of the season. Oh, wow. We're not even close to that. We're at 178 right now, not 80,000. 178. And so, and this is in the Americas, okay, mm-hmm. not the world. So we're, we're not even close. Um, and these, by the way, these, these figures are coming from the CDC. The CDC is the Centers for Disease Control. So we always want to go, you know, you can say, where are the accurate figures? These are two organizations, the World Health Organization and then the CDC. They are organizations that are actually tracking confirmed cases. I mean, they are our they are our legitimate sources because there's all kinds of hype out there about all kinds of numbers. We have to go to something that is documented. Both of these organizations are documenting their result their results. So the CDC, um, they report annually since 2010, the yearly flu. And there's always a flu every year. We know that. I mean, there's always a flu season and it's always in the cold weather. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit more and why it's in the cold weather. But 12,000 to 61,000 Americans, uh, Americans, so not Canadians, not in the region of America, just as Americans, United States, 12,000 to 61,000 Americans will die annually, have been dying annually since 2010. The biggest year was that season I just told you about with 80,000. We are at 178, and we're coming to the end of the season, by the way. We're, the end of the season is going to mm-hmm. eventually, it's all, this whole thing's going to peter out as soon as it gets nice and hot mm-hmm. around here. So, mm-hmm. 
I think that really helps put it into perspective in terms of just the fear that's going around as far as yeah. um, it seems that everyone is just so concerned that they are going to get this and they're going to die from this. So I think that's really important to put it into perspective compared to the flu in terms of those mortality rates. What I did want to touch on really quick as well, because what I'm hearing a lot of experts say is, you know, even if X number of people have died the percentage, that mortality rate of 4.2% is incredibly high. And so the one question I have is because not everyone who has this virus is getting tested or not everyone who has this virus even knows they have it because the symptoms are so mild for the majority, the odds that that mortality rate is a little more increased than it should be are pretty high. Would you agree with that? Well, the problem is, is that we have to compare it to, you know, the rate size giving, you know, from 2010 on, we're having 12,000 to 61,000 Americans die of the flu. Mm -hmm. Not in all those years, not all cases were tested and reported either. That's okay. always the situation. So we have to compare our confirmed cases of flu deaths throughout the years compared to confirmed flu cases of the COVID-19 death. So it's it's always that way, that there's mm -hmm. going to be unreported cases. People who get sick, they don't go to the doctor, they get over it. Did they have the flu of the season? Did they have COVID-19? We don't know. We'll never know that. So we are comparing apples to apples here when we look at the previous figures and the current figures, because we always will have unreported cases. So okay. we are looking at all reported and confirmed information. And in any virus, any flu of any season, there's always hundreds, thousands, who knows how many that are unreported. So mm -hmm. it's no different. So okay. that's the stats are going to be accurate. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Got it. And then, so let's dive into so much fear, I think, around if I get this virus, I'm going to die. If I get this virus, I'm going to become severely ill. Can you just share a little bit of the symptoms most people are seeing and just helps alleviate a lot of the fears around getting it, you know, encouraging us that, yes, our bodies are able to fight viruses? Oh, yes, our bodies are very able to fight viruses. Uh, just first of all, understand what the coronavirus is. The COVID-19 is one of many coronaviruses. Coronaviruses typically cause an upper respiratory infection. They can also cause gastrointestinal infections too. But COVID-19 is one of the standard coronaviruses that cause a common cold. It's an upper respiratory infection. Um, the coronavirus is a single strand of RNA. RNA is a genetic material, and it, it serves as a template that will be copied and then transcribed and then translated into the viral progeny, which are the descendants of children. And because this RNA strand has no way to make progeny, it actually has to hijack the cell machinery. So it will enter into a human host. It will go into the epithelial cells that line the upper gas or the upper respiratory tract, and then it will penetrate through the cell membrane, and then it will use the cellular machinery to replicate itself. And then after it's replicated, then it will go through a process. These progeny, the little children that it makes, will be expelled out of the cell through a process called exocytosis. They are literally ejected 
outside of the cell wall and then enter into the surrounding tissue and go to neighboring cells and, and then carry on the infection. And when we have an infection, of course, your immune system is working to try to eliminate it. And so part of the immune system function is to have the symptoms of the virus, which is the cough. So we can try to cough the virus out. Uh, the cough, of course, creates a shortness of breath because we have all this fluid. This is one way the immune system is working to try to get this virus out of the body. And a real key piece of this is the fever. A fever sometimes, sometimes, most times, is viewed by people as a horrible thing. Oh, no, you have a fever with this, so you're really, really bad. A fever is a friend. The fever raises your body temperature. Viruses and COVID-19 is, is part of this, this group of very fragile viruses. Viruses are typically fragile and the COVID-19 virus is extremely fragile and it will dissemble. That means that the, the, the virus progeny just fall to pieces. Their, their cellular structure just comes apart whenever they're in any type of heated environment. Um, and so, you know, like we're worried about infection, you know, it's, it's which is through droplets or, you know, contact, you know, with the from people that are infected on inanimate surfaces, the virus, the COVID-19 can survive two hours to nine days. Now, this is based on the type of material on which it's found. And also because COVID-19, we haven't studied, I mean, we're just in the point of studying this. We're, we're basing it on cousin viruses, the coronaviruses that are have been the most prevalent and actually more deadly than COVID-19. So these figures are based on the SARS virus and something called the MERS coronavirus, because we're still gathering actual information on COVID-19. But for these types of viruses, the cousin viruses last two hours to nine days on these inanimate surfaces, but at higher temperatures, such as 30 to 40 degrees Celsius, putting that into Fahrenheit, that's 86 to 104 degrees Fahrenheit, it reduces dramatically the persistence of the coronaviruses. Now, a lower temperature, like four degrees Celsius, that's 39 degrees Fahrenheit, so a little above freezing here, that actually increases the persistence significantly. It can last up to 28 days. So, you know, it's, it's things like if you're kids, if you've got kids, you don't want to take them to the playground. You know, you say, well, it's 50 degrees out. You know, that's enough to kill the coronavirus. Oh, no, because you've got other key kids there that, you know, on those cold steel surfaces at the playground equipment. I don't do that, you know, because the coronavirus can live out there for a long time. So that's the, the social distancing part of things that we put in here. But all of this is all nice information about inanimate objects and, you know, the temperatures that it has to be. Oh, and I should add in here right now, that's why this is all going to die out because it's going to get hot in the northern mm -hmm. hemisphere pretty soon. And the warmer it gets, then the virus are not going to be able to survive and then the flu season will go away. Can you still have the flu even if you're in some place that's above 86 degrees Fahrenheit? Yeah, because it can be direct person-to-person -person contact. So it can go from basically my cough droplets right into your nasal pharynx, into the upper respiratory system of, of the next person. So 
it's still possible to communicate it, but it's not going to be on surfaces as soon as we can start to heat things up. But the real critical piece is, can we make our body temperature hot enough? Our body temperature is running about 98 degrees Fahrenheit. And so the virus is already fragile in that. That's why you have a death rate that's, you know, you got a lot of people getting it, but there's only a certain percentage that are dying. And by the way, that certain percentage are usually people that are already immunocompromised. You know, they already have other health problems and they're the elderly or the very young under two years old that have immuno problems already. So as far as the normal healthy person, you're going to get over it, but we can do a lot. Even the immunocompromised person can do huge amounts by just raising their body temperature even just a partial of a little bit of degree. This all goes back into the study of chemical thermodynamics. Chemical thermodynamics is probably the most important area of chemistry and biochemistry that we have. It is a study of how heat and work can change the rate of chemical reactions. And heat and work are basically synonymous in the chemistry world. But the heat, if we can just increase our body temperature a little ways, you know, it's, it does, to say miraculous is an understatement. It will blow your mind at what heat can do as far as speeding chemical reactions. And it will cause the COVID-19 virus to dissemble. It dies. The virus just dies. It cannot tolerate increased heat. So, we don't have to have fancy measures. I've just been in contact with an organization in Tanzania and they're petrified because their population there, they don't have any anything advanced. I mean, these are this is a very, you know, uh, I'll say rural. I mean, they're a very disadvantaged society. And so they don't have heating pads. They don't have saunas. They don't have anything, but they have fires. They can build a fire. They can drink hot water. They can take layers of clothing. They can take a piece of cloth. It can be a rag and wrap it around their neck. They can increase their body temperature and they will be protected. And these are people, this is in a, in a country that has a lot of AIDS and we can still be protected even of the immunocompromised if we can just get our body temperature up and going. And so that's the protocol that I have. It's on my website for people that the coronavirus 19 um, uh, protocol. I'm very specific about the things that we need to do. Um, and that is, it, it's, and they're just simple things. I, I, I'll go through them right now if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. First of all, get a scarf around your neck. And if you say, oh, I don't have a scarf, get a cloth. I don't care if it's a sock, get something around your neck, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you wear this scarf inside, outside, during the day, all through the night. We're going to increase the temperature in our throat. And therefore, the biochemical reactions will be accelerated that quickly disable the virus. Drink all your water hot, not room temperature, not lukewarm. Heat it up. Now, it doesn't have to be so hot that it scalds your tongue. But you want to drink hot water, be sipping on hot water all day long. You will be a astounded at what this will do to you. So astounded. You have to stay warm. Most people are not warm. They'll say, well, I'm not cold, but they don't feel toasty warm. They need to be that warm down. I always say, be warm to your bone marrow, you know, and I'm in Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. 
And you know, when we come in out of the cold, because we got some really cold temperatures here, there's nothing better than standing by a wood stove and just feeling that heat seep into the very depths of your, your body. Just like, oh, this is this is nice. Yeah. We need to be that nice, toasty, warm all the time. We can sweat, but we don't have to sweat. To get rid of the coronavirus, we don't have to break a sweat to get rid of this. Although if we do, it's helpful. That's why the fever, you know, 104 degree fever is a very helpful friend. And you will be sweating in 104. And then you go into the chills because you're sweating. And then you get cold because you're sweating. You know, it's the the fevers and the chills. That's typical. That's all fine because you're still running that high body temperature. So besides staying this toasty warm by drinking okay. their water hot, keeping the scarf, we've got to stay out of drafts. A lot of people, they like to run fans. You know, they got the ceiling fan going. They got a fan on themselves. It's like, stop the drafts. Don't go by windows. Don't sleep with your head under a window. Don't be, you know, standing in the doorway where there's a little breeze. We got to stay out of drafts because drafts always lower our body temperature. Also, okay. when we're outside, the wind or any air on our ears, it makes this upper respiratory infections worse. I don't know if you've ever, people who have chronic ear infections, they know this already. They're always putting cotton in their ears or they have earplugs in their ears or they got a a cap with ear flaps or a stocking cap on their head. This is really important. We want to cover up our ears so we don't have that wind moving over those open ear canals, which lead down to the eustachian tubes, which is all coming as part of going to drip down and I say drip down because there's mucus that occurs and then it drips down into the upper respiratory tract. So cover your ears when you're outside. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have any problems and you will with coronavirus, you're going to have some runny noses. You can have the postnasal drip. You're going to have all this mucus in your throat and coughing. We need to be in an upright position. So it's a, a 30 degree angle between the plane of a bed and then your upper body. So you need to be propped up like in a recliner, propped up on the couch, propped up in your bed, not just with a pillow shoved under your head. I'm talking about from the waist up, we need at least that 30 degree angle. That gives us the force of gravity that's going to pull this mucus down where actually the mucus is going to go into your gut. And the gut has got a one molar hydrochloric acid solution there. It will kill that virus dead. So, I mean, it's just a really nice thing. And then you'll also notice that you can breathe more easily when you're not drowning in your own mucus. You know, when you're lying flat, all that mucus just piles into your upper respiratory tract and you're trying to go (laughs) and breathe uh, when you're upright and you've got gravity yeah. working for you. I mean, these are such simple things. When you look at gravity, you look at chemical thermal dynamics, which is the basis of all chemistry and biology. You should just stay warm, be upright. Um, and then if you have the capacity, I mean, like the people I was talking about in this African com- country, they don't have the capacity, but we certainly do in the United States. We have saunas. We have heating pads. We have rice bags that we can throw into, you know, the oven or the microwave or, you know, they got bean bags, they got corn bags. There's all kinds of these things. Get those things on your chest. Get a heating pad on your chest. If you can go to the sauna, go to the sauna, you know, go at least once a day. If you cannot make it there three times a day, you know, and get get some time in with being warm. Turn up the heat in your house. Um, Now, I want to put a caveat in here. Do not put a heating pad on a little tiny child, on an infant or a toddler, a small child, or any elderly person or infirm infirm individual, because they can't, they can't communicate to you. How's the baby going to say, you're overheating me, mama, (laughs) take off the heating pad. They can't. So, and when you say, well, what do I do with my baby? That's got it. You hold that baby, just the person to person contact, just being 
you probably held a child in your lap. You know, everybody gets hot. You know, the child, you do too, because you got this body temperature against body. That's perfect. That'll work. Thank you. <laughs> um, we just want to keep people warm. Um, there's something else now. These are all the chemical thermodynamics, gravity working for us. But I want you to know just something about sugar. There's a lot of immunosuppressants that we use. And, and by the way, if a person wants to know how to build their immune system, I have a whole course on that. I have several e-courses on my website, and I have one called Living Well, and I specifically address how to build an immune system. But right now, we're looking at COVID-19 in the eyeballs, and we have to get better right now. You will not build your immune system overnight. This is a process because the white blood cells, they can live for 120 days. It will take a minimum of four months or longer to build an immune system. Well, we need an inc- we need help now. What's that help? It's the heat. Because even if your your immune system will work faster with the heat, because it's all chemical thermodynamic, chemical all chemical reactions are going to be increased exponentially. I'm not talking about you know oh just a little bit. We're talking exponentially. So even if you have a crippled immune system. This heat is going to help you. Absolutely. But there is one thing that will stand in our way. And like in this course on building your immune system, I go through all the things we need to do. But we're, we're looking at coronavirus right now. And we have got to do something today, this second. And you're not going to be able to do all those things right now. But we can do this right now. And this is eliminate the high sugar items from your diet. Do not decide this is time for ice cream. First of all, ice cream lowers your body temperature. It's cold. Don't do that. But any ice cream yeah. is ice cream is sweet. And don't do dessert. You'll say, well, I'll have a hot chocolate chip cookie out of the oven. No, we're not going to do chocolate chip cookies either. We're not going to do any desserts. We're not going to do brown sugar, molasses, syrup, honey. We are not going to be doing anything, including fruit sugars, because sugar always lowers our immune system function. We have what are called neutrophils. It's one of the white blood cells. It is the primary white blood cell, that along with the macrophage that is out there killing the virus. And we have traps. We have neutrophil traps that actually capture the virus before it can enter the cell to commandeer the cell machinery to replicate itself. And we can capture the virus and hold it there until we can kill it. And your immune system is making antiviral agents all the time. And then if you have heat on top of it, heat alone, without any immune system assistance, heat alone will kill this virus. So that's the key piece in all of this. But when you eat sugar, you need to know you are lowering your immune system function significantly because you disable the neutrophil and you disable the macrophage. They cannot set their traps. We have, we have other parts of the immune system to deal with the neutrophils that we disable the, the, it's called a phagocyte. They're able to eat the, the macrophage and the neutrophil actually will eat the virus, consume it. And that's the way it kills it. We, we disable them from being able to eat the virus. We just, We can't do that. So at this time, when we're looking at COVID-19, we're going to stay warm. We don't eat sweets, even fructose, because all the experiments, and these are scientific experiments. If you need to me, want to, I can send you the articles and links if you want to put in your podcast for references and so people can read it themselves. Yeah, Um, I would love that, yeah. Yeah, I will send you those articles. Um, But 
I just want you to know that this, these experiments have been run with fructose as well. And, you know, we, we're always so, but fruit is good for us. It's high in nutrients. It is high in nutrients, but your vegetables are higher in nutrients. They have much more nutrients than your, your fruits do with 10 times less sugar. Fructose will lower your immune system function. It doesn't matter how much nutrient value it has. We're still overall going to lose out because of its high sugar content. Fructose always is converted into blood glucose. We're not going to stop it. It always happens. Mm -hmm. There was one other thing that I put in the protocol. It's on my website. By the way, it's free to everybody, to the coronavirus protocol. I mean, you can just read it, you know. But there's something that we can do, garlic. Um, And I put it in here because garlic is a natural antiviral agent, no doubt about it. It's also antibacterial and antifungal. It's very good, but I just want you to know that the garlic can be harsh, just like some other supplements, like vitamin C comes into the same realm. They're very hard on the gastrointestinal tract. They can cause diarrhea. They can cause heartburn. They can cause acid reflux. So there's some side effects. Can they be helpful? Yes. The most helpful thing, however, is the heat. I mean, we're talking about hands down, over the top, nothing can beat heat. I mean, it is the killer of this virus. So all these other things are nice, but they're not the key piece. So we could get garlic to our food. And it, and a lot of people are into it has to be raw garlic. Uh, no, not actually. Garlic is a very powerful sulfur-containing um, food. Sulfur is one of our elements. It has these wonderful valence electrons that allow it to be very interactive in chemical reactions. And so it has a lot of power. But we actually have to have to break down products of the sulfur to get to its very effective state. So actually cooked garlic is better than your raw garlic. And also cooked garlic is easier on your stomach too. I don't know if anybody's taking garlic. I mean, everybody has. I mean, if you get too much, well, you got a stomach ache. Mm -hmm. So uh, so the, the consumption of garlic is not the critical piece. It's just there as an adjunct. The big thing is you got to get warm, get a scarf on, get a shawl on, get some layers on, get your hot water going. Everybody can heat hot water. It doesn't matter how you heat it. Get it on the stove, in the microwave. I don't care. Just get it hot. And you will be astounded at what this will do, even for the immunocompromised. What if we do have an elderly person in our home that has got the coronavirus we're just going to keep them warm and we're going to keep pumping the hot water into them and they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's so comforting to hear how simple it can be because there's so many things we could potentially do, as you said, to boost our immune system. You know, doctors are throwing around vitamin C and vitamin D and elderberry mm-hmm. and zinc. And, you know, I think right away, everyone, first of all, gets overwhelmed with, okay, so I need to start taking a million things or I'm going to die. But then also, particularly in this moment, a lot of those things aren't even available, which increases that fear and that stress. So I think this is such good information to just calm all of our nerves that, you know, at the very, very base, we are all able to add a little bit more warmth to our neck and have a hot cup of water, jump in a bathtub. If Absolutely. we have a little bit more privilege, maybe jump in a sauna. But there's these are very, very simple things we can do. And cutting out the sugar is huge because I know it's so difficult, especially families with children in this time to appease them, maybe help them feel a little bit better. We want to give them a cookie or some sugar or some ice cream, like you said. 
but that is actually one of the worst things we can do right now. And I really want to impress that upon the audience that this is not the time to be handing kids the sweets to make them feel better. There's other things we can do, I'm sure. Absolutely. And we we don't ever have to use food as reward. How about read a book together? We will, you know, we'll, we'll watch our favorite, you know, movie together. We will, you know, we'll, we will play, you know, we'll do a puzzle together. We'll do, you know, there's so many things you can do. They just want your attention. That's all. Yeah. And I just want to make it clear. So if you are having symptoms and you do feel unwell, you're having a fever, you're having a cough, not to panic, but to do these things as well. These are great, whether you've got symptoms or not. Exactly. So this is a preventative. If you because we could be exposed to the coronavirus, even despite all the social distancing and all the hygienic measures, you know, that we're being advised to take and all of that is fine. But it, it's not it's not the key piece. It's the heat. We've got to be warm. And even when we come in contact with a coronavirus, if we are already warm, it will never even take hold. You'll never even get it because you snuffed it out before it even took hold because you were warm. Okay. I think that's so important, again, because, you know, people are afraid to go to the grocery store. People are afraid to go to their doctor or they're going to the grocery store with face masks and gloves and, you know, a hazmat suit on. Mm -hmm. And while that, you know, while it may not be completely necessary, I think there's just so many things people are concerned about. And if we can help them understand, look, you don't even need to worry about it getting on your skin. If you have, you know, you're reducing your sugar so your immune system is working at peak performance and you're keeping yourself warm so that virus can't even take root. Exactly. Exactly. Now, can you touch a little bit on, for those people who are, you know, feeling extra concerned, can you give us your opinion on things like that, like face masks and gloves, are they necessary? Are they not necessary from your own words so that the audience can hear your take on it? I don't think it's necessary if you're going to keep warm and you're going to get rid of your sugar. It's, you're going to be okay. Um, It's okay to do it. I mean, if you want to, it's not hurting anything, but I mean, I, it's, if you were doing the heat and the getting rid of your sugar, you're pretty much got your bases covered. Mm-hmm. And the those aren't even foolproof ways to really no. protect yourself. I know it makes no. people feel better, but the reality is, you know, you go to the grocery store, sure, you've got gloves and a mask on, but if someone coughs as they're walking past you, that virus can then get on your clothes and then you go home and hug your children and now it's on them. So exactly. again, you know, exactly. unless you're going to really look at every single tiny little detail the best, best way. And the easiest way is exactly what you said. Heat yourself up, cut out the sugar. I mean, it can't, it couldn't get simpler than that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I am curious on your take. Why do you feel like this virus in particular has created such an uproar, so much fear? I don't know. Um, those who are more versed in maybe politics, economics, and the effect of the media might be more qualified to speak on that question. Here's my purpose. My purpose is not to shout and say, this is ridiculous. Everybody that's getting all up in arms about this, this is ridiculous. No, my purpose is to turn on the nightlight. When we're afraid of the dark, we just need a little nightlight mm. to dispel the fear. And that's what this heat and don't eat your sugar is, it's just a nightlight 
There's nothing to be afraid of. There's no monsters under their bed. There's it's the darkest, not something to be afraid of. We just need the nightlight. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then can you give us just some other reliable resources that you would recommend people going to? I know you mentioned the Center for Disease Control, CDC, and then the who, the World Health Organization? Are those the two that you would really push people to go to for information? Yeah, there are so many sites out there, but you really are going to have to go to the ones that are legit. And it is the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization. And so that's where we go. And then we go to scientific articles, not an article by this person or that person. You've got to go back to the science. You've got to look at what we know with chemistry and biochemistry. So I will send you my my resources that, you know, I, I have. I can give you the links to the, you know, the CDC and where you can look at the world map and look at all the current stats and all that. And then my articles I was talking to you about on sugar yeah. and various things so that you can see them. And they're all scientific articles. I don't Thank ever you. refer anything unless it is scientifically sound. So. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And I'll make sure they're all linked in the show notes. And the reason why I want to really reiterate to the audience that we need to be going to these reliable science-backed sites is because I think the mass media has just created really truly a pandemic of fear amidst a real pandemic of this virus. And I'm just, I'm trying to share with people that you know, I haven't watched a single scrap of, you know, quote unquote news because I know that it doesn't serve me. It's not going to do anything for my own uh, mentality in all of this, you know, going to the grocery store or hearing on the news that so-and-so in this city got in a huge fight over a bag of pasta or whatever, that's not going to help me protect mm-hmm. myself and prepare for this virus at all. So really want to encourage people. There's not, there's no need to watch any of that. If you're nervous and concerned, exactly go to those reliable resources for the clear, cold, hard facts, because that's really all you need in this time. Yes. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for coming on. This was absolutely amazing. I think you really shared with us new, fresh, but again, still science-backed information. So I'm so excited for people to get this and just to be sort of washed in a wave of comfort and peace amidst all of this. Oh, I'm very, I I want to help these people. I want to help people. I want to dispel fear. I want people to know truth. 